Welcome to Jaffa's Space, a podcast about the world of Jewish outdoor food, farming, and environmental education, also known as Jaffe. I'm Yoshi Silverstein. And I'm Hannah Henza. Together, we are the Jaffe program team at Chazon, the Jewish Lab for Sustainability. Jaffe is a catch-all term shared by many to describe educational experiences that connect people to Judaism, community, and the natural world through hands-on, thoughtful, and engaging Jewish content across different ages, backgrounds, and religious approaches. It's a growing movement with people, programs, and organizations throughout North America who are doing some pretty incredible things. Join us as we get to know the people behind this work, learn what Jaffe looks like on the ground, and get the inside scoop on the challenges, obstacles, and moments of serendipity that have shaped today's Jaffe landscape. Ready to go? Grab your shovel, your rake, or whatever your tool of choice, and let's dig in. in. Hello and welcome to Jaffa's Space. We've got Yoshi and Hannah from the Chazon Jaffe team. And this week we are thrilled to welcome Rabbi Jacob Fine and Rebecca Leung from Abundance Farm. Hi. Hi. Jacob is director, Rebecca is farm educator and a Jaffe fellow in the current fellowship cohort. And we will hear from these two folks in a moment. I want to tell you about Abundance Farm, which is such an interesting, unique, relatively new player in the in the Jaffe space. And Abundance Farm has a threefold mission. Number one, to practice and promote food justice and local food security. Number two, to build strong community between their three collaborating organizations, which we'll hear more about, as well as between the Northampton Jewish community and broader local community. And number three, to provide outdoor education experiences, which inspire a love of the natural world, promote a sense of personal responsibility to care for creation and a love of learning. So uh, we are so excited to hear more about Abundance Farm from you all. Please tell us just a little bit more about who you are and what this work is. Great, thanks. So uh, Abundance Farm, as you mentioned, is kind of uh, um, one of the things that makes Abundance Farm uh, a unique project is, is the the nature of collaboration between the organizations that work together around it. So it's a project of synagogue here in Northampton, and we have the great blessing of sharing a campus with two other organizations with the city's food pantry. It's called the Northampton Survival Center, and with Lander Grinsman Academy, which is a K-6 through Jewish day school. And then the synagogue also houses both preschool and uh, supplementary school. So the farm functions as a community building space for each of these organizations as well as the broader community and serves as an outdoor classroom for the three schools on the campus as well as other demographics. We have a really active teen internship and apprenticeship that we'd be excited to share with you about that we call Shefa. And um, we have a, everything that we grow on Abundance Farm is free um, and open to the public which is um, kind of a core part of the philosophy of the farm is grounded in this theology 
um, of land being not ultimately not something that humans can own, but that we serve as stewards for it. We try to put that kind of radical biblical philosophy, theology into practice by trying to relate to the land as, as stewards rather than landowners and open it up to the wider community by virtue of the proximity with the survival center most of the food that we grow on the farm is harvested directly by food insecure uh, folks here in the community. Wow, you guys are really doing a lot. How did you each come to this space? We hear so many different stories from so many different directions, but this is, your project is, Abundance Farm sounds like really a unique space within our Jaffe world, the, the sort of center of all of these ideals that you were just sort of circulating around. So. How did you each come to this project and, and what does it mean to you to be doing this work? Uh, well, I have been here since about April, so I'm relatively new to this farm. I come from a production farming background, so before this I was working on CSA farms, community supported agriculture farms, and wholesale farms. So yeah, I was drawn at, on organic farms and I was really drawn to alternative farming methods as um, a solution to our climate crisis and food justice, food insecurity. And I think when this position opened up at Abundance Farm for a full-time farm educator, it happened like right at the right moment as I was like also really interested in diving into my own Judaism. I wanted, yeah, I really was interested in the opportunity of being a visible queer mixed race Jew in a mainstream Jewish organization. And I was friends with Rose, the farm manager. And so it just seemed like this like really beautiful opportunity to get to put my farming practices to use and like learn about the Jewish roots of agricultural practice and get to be on an incredible team while doing it. That's so awesome. We've been referencing, we've been calling those, those moments, these uh, referencing as the serendipity moments, you know, throughout. We've, it seems like that's a theme that kind of comes up over and over. It's just like, um, these these jobby spaces sort of provide uh, the right the right space at the right time for folks and, mm -hmm. and so it's it's really lovely that um, yeah that you were able to, to find that so so Jacob how did you come to this project you've been doing this a little bit longer I think yeah well I identify with that that um, way that you put it the kind of serendipity or the you know that through my own journey over the last 20 plus years being involved in kind of the intersection of Judaism and agriculture and food justice and the environment. There've been a lot of different turns and openings, none of which I fully anticipated and feel really blessed along the way. So I have been interested in kind of this intersection for a long time, starting in college. And at that time, I, as I was exploring ways to try to integrate my own identity as a spiritual seeker with my environmental commitments and love of the natural world, I actually didn't know that there were other people. I didn't have a context or a community for that and found out as I was kind of graduating college that Teva, Jewish Environmental Education Organization, existed and was so excited about that. And that was really kind of the beginning or it started really in college in my senior year where I was doing research on Shemitah. I spent my senior year doing the thesis on the sabbatical year. And that was really the moment where I 
started kind of re-engaging or deepening my relationship with Judaism and finding a way to synthesize my identities and, and kind of seeing the tradition that I was brought up in through a very different lens by virtue of that kind of investigation and then finding Teva and finding a community to do this exploration with was really what set me on my path about 20 years ago. And I wor- I've worked in a number of different Jewish environmental organizations, including Chazon years ago. And I actually had until now worked outside of, in the kind of ecology of startup organizations, the Jewish Farm School, uh, Chazon, and others, and did not imagine ever working in a legacy institution, even though I, I ended up going to rabbinical school, became a rabbi, but did not imagine ever working in a synagogue, um, imagine doing this kinds of work in the kind of Jewish nonprofit startup sector, uh, where m- most of this energy had existed and the movement was building uh, through the proliferation of these, these startups. And the short way of, of stating it is that it's been incredibly exciting and rewarding to do this kind of find a way to bring the, the spirit of this work that until now I've only experienced in outside of legacy institutions, right inside of a Jewish day school and a synagogue and a Jewish preschool and a community that is a true community in the sense that it's intergenerational and not going anywhere. It's not a transitional community. And I walked into it with some level of skepticism and did not imagine personally it being necessarily long-term work, but it has been incredibly satisfying on lots of levels and feel very fortunate to have found a setting that was so receptive to these kinds of ideas. What a journey. I mean, first of all, what a college thesis to just set you up on this you know, path of exploration and journeying through you know, what's really become this catalyzation for your community. So I would love to hear before we sort of dive into like the nitty gritty of what each of you do, you know, how was that process of integration or, you know, was there resistance in your community or you said they, that you felt like there was really good reception to these ideas, but was that from the beginning or when you found yourself at a legacy institution, was there a little bit of stretching and growth yeah. that, that happened? It's a, Great and perceptive question. I think, yeah, gam vagam, yes and yes. I mean, I took the position. Um, the synagogue was ostensibly looking for, you know, an education director. It was not something that the synagogue had identified a need for, a desire for a farm. But they owned this land that um, really the project, the project's magic is largely a function of, or could not happen without the blessing of the geography, where the land that is Abundance Farm is right here on the same campus that's a stone's throw from the synagogues and the day school and the um, food pantry. So there was a real a possibility and a willingness and openness on the part of the synagogue to see what would come of this idea. And as some listeners will know, Northampton, Massachusetts, like we're in this very fertile valley where there's, it's a center of small farming movement and it's the general culture is one that our project fits within. And having said all of that, it was not self-evident to many people that how this made sense, whether that this was uh, the right allocation of resources or was the kind of thing that a synagogue 
does or should be doing. We took really a full year before we broke ground of community building and coalition building and lots of community conversations with each of the uh, potential key stakeholders to try to share the vision that we brought and in a spirit of openness and collaboration, really genuinely trying to share that we wanted this to be a project from the beginning that included the input and leadership from these others. And it's been a process where now this is our sixth growing season that we're in the middle of, and we had a full year of planning in anticipation of that. So each year there has been growth in the the fabric of the relationships between the organizations. I certainly would be not telling the full story if I didn't mention that it hasn't always been totally easy. It's complicated. Folks who run nonprofits know that like, even if you're not partnering, it's complicated to try to do that and be embedded within a larger organization and then partnering closely with two other organizations, three schools. It's often complicated, but that's what makes it what it is. And the last thing that I'll say is that I think that most people would say that the value proposition that we brought to this project, in terms of what we anticipated it would add to the community, has, has played out, has in fact been the case. And at this point, there are you know, a fewer and fewer people who would be scratching their heads saying, wait a second, synagogue with a farm, day school with a farm, don't quite get it. And it really has become quite central to certainly the mission and vision of the synagogue. Um, and the preschool, and, and, and in many ways embedded within the, the day school, and increasingly valued as a really core part of the food pantry as well. It's so beautiful. I mean, yes, it's complicated. Yes, there's lots of moving pieces, but it's so beautiful what can just happen when people say yes. When they just say, okay, you know, what do we have to lose? Like, let's just do this thing. And, and I think, yeah, I mean, lots of hard work, lots of, lots of things to work through, but it, you, abundance is just such a beautiful, you know, example of what can shine from that. But kind of, kind of diving down a little bit into, into your actual roles and, and what you do on a day-to-day basis, I would love to hear just a little bit about um, what you each do and maybe what that looks like in any given day, or it sounds like, Jacob, maybe you're still doing some congregational work or kind of playing that role between the organizations. And Rebecca, I would, I would love to just hear from you about, you know, your transition from production farming to education farming and, and how that's playing out for you. And Yeah, so as the farm educator, I see my role as being a real translator between the farm and our educational partners. So with Gan Keshet, the preschool, and Alma, our Hebrew school, and LGA, the Jewish day school, and really partnering with each of these people and figuring out like how can the farm best serve their pre-existing curriculum and like what new curriculum can we offer them that would enhance that, their missions. Yeah, I work with students between the ages of three and 14. It's like an incredible range that I get to work with. And it's like lots of different muscles that I get to use. And then during the summer, I'm part of the teen program. And yeah, I'm just thinking of the other day, like had a check-in with the other chef and staff members about how we could talk about power analysis and talking about food injustice. And like, as I was leaving that meeting, I like stopped by the summer preschool program and like sat with scissors 
and the students and like cut down the pea trellis together and then like planted sunflower seeds and then like went inside and like tried to figure out when we should harvest the wheat. So like this job is just like really interesting. Like I'm just like learning so much about how to be an educator, but also just like when to harvest wheat, how do we talk about oppression? How do we talk about just how are we infusing our Jewish values in like every single thing that we do? Like when we talk about indigenous sovereignty, like the indigenous history of this land and getting to do that from a Jewish perspective. Yeah, I feel like I'm just getting to learn so much. And the transition from production farming here is like, also like just been really fascinating. Like I just like noticed in my body, like, oh, I miss hand weeding carrots for four hours on end. And like, I don't think I thought I would miss that as much. So sometimes I'll like be working on a lesson plan and like, I can't think very well. So I'll go out and like hand weed all of the cilantro. For a sense of scale, we're like a one acre farm. It's a, it's a pretty small farm. So like I've also, it's just been really interesting to translate my production farming skills to like a smaller scale. I had never planted potatoes, not with a tractor before. And this year I planted them with kindergartners and you know used like really gentle hands and like put them in the earth and covered it up and then they're going to come back as first graders and harvest them for Hanukkah and make latkes which like you know I know a lot about growing potatoes but like I had never grown potatoes I've never grown potatoes that way I know about like pest um, scouting and spraying organic uh, pesticides but the benefit of this being a small scale is our pest management is literally just squishing them with our hands so, like it's just like really like a beautiful picture or it's like a beautiful compliment to my experience as a production farmer of like the different relationships to land that are possible and the different ways that we can like experience land together and getting to do that Jewishly has been really beautiful. And I, I have to commend you for really like diving in and owning this role. You've really been rising up as a leader in this space of like, how do our Jewish values influence every single aspect of our work? If we're talking about land, if we're talking usage and, and um, indigenous peoples and, and our history, or if we're talking about, you know, Jews of color or whatever the, whatever our work sort of tangentially touches, you know, on the fringes, like I, I've really been hearing your name around and and I'm excited that you'll be teaching at Javi Network Gathering and like coming to, to represent some of these subjects. So just, just a plug for that. Come, come check you out. Yeah. <laughs> but Jacob, it sounds like you, your role is a little bit different every day. Yeah. I was smiling as I heard Rebecca describe her role because it did remind me of like my favorite job maybe I ever had, which was not ever going to become a permanent one when I was, at Adama the first two seasons and I had this fun job as farm director and also like kind of like rabbi to the fellows and that kind of like just in any given moment going from you don't know in the next, in 10 minutes you'll be, you know from farming to leading a class with the fellows and the changing of those hats so my, my role is different now I am responsible for managing the organization the project that has grown a lot over over the last um, seven years so that involves you know strategic planning visioning um, making sure that we have clarity as to the direction that we're trying to head and financial sustainability for sure uh, the fundraising is is on my shoulders strategic uh, partnerships 
um, nurturing the, the partnerships between the, the organizations with whom uh, we work, a fair amount of supervision of, of uh, many of our staff members, and it is just part of my job. So I, the Bunnings Farm is a project of, it's, it's not its own independent organization, right? It's a project of Congregation B'nai Israel, and I'm a rabbi here at the synagogue, so I, have a I wear a variety of hats, and that really is to the benefit of the community and the benefit of the farm for sure, in the sense that it is um, deeply integrated into the fabric of the community. So it's often somewhat arbitrary to, that when we call something a farm event, it really maybe is functioning as just a synagogue event. Much of our early childhood programming at the synagogue happens through the platform of, of the farm. So... I also am responsible for all the youth and family education in the synagogue. So yes, in any given day, I'm doing a variety of different things. Ran a wedding this morning. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. Okay. I, yeah, I love that. It's clearly such a unique workplace. And uh, Rebecca, your story about going out and just like doing some weeding when you just need to, to move and do something different. I was just listening to Nate Looney, who's um, also a Jew of color and coming to Jaffe Network Gathering and runs Westside Urban Gardens in the LA area. So he was on this Garden Nerd podcast that I was listening to. And he was talking about, he has like a military background. He was talking about sometimes he's just like channeled that aggression, uh, both to the aggression, but also he sort of said, he's like, I'm used to every decision being potentially life or death. And that sometimes trips me up when I, I just need to respond to a simple email. And it's very clearly not life or death, but he's like, I get in my head about the importance of this and I just, it gets totally just worked up about it. And he's like, so I just go out and I weed for five or 10 or 20 minutes and clear my head and I can come back and sit down and just like get back, back to it. So it, unfortunately that is not a feature of most, most of our workplaces to be able to go do that. I was also just laughing in my head when you're talking about instead of a tractor to plant, you know, potatoes of having all these kindergartners and I'm like, okay, so a kindergartner tractor, is that like a chicken tractor? Like you just have this mobile, you know, container <laughs> it's like the kindergarten or are they, you know, like, or, or is it um, like holding yeah. their feet like wheelbarrow style and they're the just wheelbarrow. Yeah, exactly yeah. like, and they're not actually like in a group, they're scattered all over. <laughs> right. Right. So it's, yeah, it's, um, it's like deconstructed, democratized soil. <laughs> I don't know, I'll work on that. But a question that I had about, yeah, just about this, about the workplace and about the folks that you're working with. We have a lot of different people in the Jaffe sphere who are either in schools or are working with schools, working with teachers. Um, and I know that's definitely a strong piece of this collaborative model that you have. And, you know, teachers, of course, are our core, like core partners in, in that work when we're trying to work with schools. And like, God bless our teachers, right? They are just are like holding so many different things. And, you know, I know sometimes it can feel difficult to find those points of intersection where like you were talking about, it's like thinking, finding the things that are both good for the work you're trying to do and also helpful and valuable to the teachers, right? And I think there's sometimes also just the natural 
teachers, especially if they just are used to doing their work in a classroom, they've got everything set up, they're like, you know, rocking and rolling, and you're saying, actually, you want to just like take these kids out into this unstructured environment where they're just going to get really dirty, and then come back into your classroom, right? Like, all of these just different factors that influence how we work well and in good partnership and right relationship with teachers. So we'd love to hear from you all, like what are some of the things that you have learned that have helped you to be those good partners and find the things that are sort of win-win and providing value all around when working with teachers and, and with you know educational partners? Well, I think, I think in general, there's just like a movement towards having more school gardens and having educational farms. And I think before I was in production farming, I actually was first attracted to this work through my time at a school. I was working at an elementary school and they had a school garden and um, I was an AmeriCorps fellow and it was this incredible resource that enhanced my lessons and so it just felt like a really natural fit and that was probably nine years ago and that felt like there was like tons of energy around like school gardens and school farms and I think now returning to educational farming, I can see that like there's just been so much work done that like fewer and fewer people are questioning, is this useful? Is this a classroom tool that I want? I think if like the resource is there, then like people are really excited to use it. And Neelay Simfai, who's also on our team, has done like incredible work doing relationship building as in her role here at Abundance Farm. And so like I stepped in having like the great fortune of getting to benefit from years and years that she's done of relationship building, um, where I guess to just like go outside and facilitate the lesson and the teachers don't question that in the spring we plant potatoes. Like that's just what we do. I think I would add that some of the things that we've done that, that seem to have been, you know, that I would share with other programs that, that seem to have been critical and, and worked. And we've certainly done things that we've learned by their lack of success in this regard, but it was critical in our model that we had the farm employed specialists. So we had this, this director of outdoor education, Neely, and now Rebecca as well as a full-time farm educator who can serve as resources to the teachers, to liaise with the teachers. It would not have worked, and I'm not convinced it would ever work, to kind of cut out the farm educators and to expect that the teachers in the schools themselves could successfully take the responsibility of integrating the farm. So that's just been a model that I think is really critical to have people who can serve as liaisons and resources. And then another piece is that it's been really critical that we don't have a kind of top-down approach in telling the teachers like, this is, you know, we've created curriculum and we'd like you to employ it or we'd like to employ it for you, that instead we've attempted to take a very collaborative approach and just said, we are here as a resource. What are you trying to already teach? What are you excited about teaching? And we would like to work with you to just be a resource to develop ideas with you. So it's been a very collaborative, iterative relationship with, with the teachers that I think has been also really critical to the success and to provide kind of as much support as they might like, but also to be prepared to do a lot of team Zoom and, and drawing back and allowing, once they feel confident and prepared to take on the leadership role, we take a supportive role, that's success. Um, and 
there are also, of course, some teachers who are more uh, excited and receptive than, than others. And, and that's also probably inevitable. Can yeah. I add? Yeah, please. Yeah, I just want to highlight that, like, I think something that Abundance Farm does really well and that is unique is this, like, relationship building. Like, so much time is put, like, at the end of the school year, Neely and I sat with each teacher from the Jewish Day School for an hour, if not more, going over the whole year, talking about highlights, how we can, what they want to improve for next year. And then we're going to have a second round of meetings before the school year starts. That is just like such a dedication and such a commitment of resource and time to building these relationships. And like, there's so many ways that this could be done. This could be done as art teacher model where the teacher comes and drops off the kids and is like, bye, I'm doing planning. This could be the like, what Jacob was saying, where we're like, here's the curriculum, run with it, bye teacher. Um, we also don't do that. Like so much of it is we want this to fit with it. And I think part of that is like the setup of the Jewish day school that like they have pretty small classes, like um, they don't have to go very far geographically. They just have to walk outside. Like if they had to make a field trip every time, it would be a really different setup. Yeah. I could give one more exa specific example that I think has also been key is we've um, from early on had kind of uh, different kinds of leadership teams that comprised of teachers from each of the respective schools who themselves met together with often with with Neely and had some specific issue or um, you know charge to develop so we've been offering professional development the farm has has now I think four times convened professional development for all of the campus educators and campus teachers there's um, have representatives from the different schools have been part of the planning team, the design team to help decide what the focus of the professional development might look like and organize it. So there's, you know, it's really attempted to get folks to buy in, in, in that way. There's just so much richness there. I think, yeah, the, on that latter point of, yeah, how this abundance farm and how this just, common space has become a platform to bring folks from these different institutions together in ways that maybe didn't happen before where there wasn't literally the platform for yeah. that to happen and actually going going back to Jacob what you're saying about Shemitah and also just the relationship to land and ownership going even further into thinking about the shared ownership of this particular plot of land and also just of the mission of what everyone is doing of um, whether that be providing abundance, right, for of growing food for the community, of creating opportunities for people to connect to the land, to connect to Jewish identity and community, learning, all, all of those different things. I think this is, uh, it's clear that there's a rich platform for that. I think, right, building on the value of relationship building and thinking about uh, orienting towards the relationships. And I think we all, like, we're, especially if we're wanting to do new projects, it's, we're often so eager to jump in and start doing all the things. And I love like the, the idea of seems to of contraction of saying, actually, yes, we want to extend ourselves and, and say, how can we provide value, but also being able to step back and saying, yes, actually let's be in relationship. And that is just a core part of this work and knowing when to actually have that patience of saying, yeah, this, this relationship building is really important. And, and it may mean that we need to have patience around the things we're excited about are, are going to come out of that. And we need to 
keep our own ideas in balance with all of those things. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about just maybe some personal challenges that have allowed you to all grow as professionals. We may also talk about what is it about Northampton, Massachusetts that keeps on pulling Isabella Friedman expats yeah. in the community. Um, Neely Simchai being one notable figure in that, but also not the only one by any means. But we'll take a quick break and catch everyone on the flip side. episode of Jaffa Space was brought to you by the Monarch Butterflies. On a sunny day in May, you can catch these avid pollinators and lovers of milkweed on their way into town after spending the summer down south. They might even be stopping at Abundance Farm to check out the milkweed curriculum that Rabbi Jacob and Rebecca are planning. In their young caterpillar phase, monarchs exhibit yellow, black, and white stripes as camouflage to confuse predators and have evolved to taste disgusting to birds. As adults, they are so magnificent that there are even other butterflies who mimic them. Imitation may be one of the best forms of flattery, but in nature, imitation is also one of the greatest forms of self-defense, because birds who know that monarchs aren't tasty will also stay away from their mimics. Next time you see one of the monarch caterpillars, remember that every organism goes through many phases of transformation throughout their lives, including humans. There's much growth, learning, and eating to do in life, so let's take time to admire the beauty of the monarch butterfly and the beauty of our own transformations. If you want to participate in some citizen science monarch observation projects, head over to journeynorth.org monarchs. And if you're in a good location, maybe even plant some milkweed to nourish these winged little beauties on their journeys. Welcome back. That was a beautiful word from our sponsors, the monarch butterfly making a stop in Northampton. So diving back in, you know, we've talked a lot about your roles and, and your motivations and the work that you're actually doing, but I would love to just hear a little bit about um, some of the flip side. You know, what is a challenge that you faced or something that you're, you know, grappling with or thinking about now, either individually or like for your role within the organization that you would be willing to, to share with folks and maybe how you're working through that? The personal challenge is... You know, I'm, as with many jobs, I, I gather there's so much on-the-job training. I didn't go to business school. I don't have a degree in nonprofit management. So there's a lot of, in terms of executive skills, just growth that I have done, continue to do as the organization develops. So I, I think that that is kind of an ongoing professional challenge is um, making sure that I have the skills, develop the skills to, to, to lead the organization uh, soundly. And I'd say kind of related to that as a, as a project, I'd say, you know, that one of the challenges that we face for sure is how to have a sustainable financial model. You know, we, we like many uh, startups, benefited from the, the way that the Jewish philanthropic world has really invested in, in startups in incubation of new projects over the last, you know, 10, 15 year, years. And that's terrific, but it's, it's difficult for many organizations to then find ways to have sustainable models once they've graduated from that, you know, first stage. So now we're squarely, we're certainly um, not a startup. And, um, you know, thank God we're a thriving organization. There's a lot of love. 
um, for what it is that we do. And I think we're, we're assuming a really important role in the community. We have a lot of supporters. That's the challenge that we're facing. It's a pivotal moment of how do we graduate from the incubation grants and figure out how to, to sustain and grow the organization for the long term. Yeah. I'm so grateful that Jacob has to worry about that. So <laughs> thank you so much. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. Well, an interesting question that as a team we've been trying to answer and that impacts my role as an educator is how do we tell the story of the land Jewishly? I know that's something that like Rose has been asking for a while and that's something Neely and I have been asking together. We have a three sisters garden at Abundance Farm. Three sisters or three siblings, I've also heard it called, is an indigenous gardening practice, farming practice involving corn, beans, and squash. They all benefit each other. It's a practice that's used, has been used all over this continent. So what does it mean that we have this garden as a Jewish organization? How do we teach it in a way that has dignity and respect and humility? And it's been really interesting and humbling and part of just getting to be in Jewish process of like having a question and not having an answer and like getting to just like explore everything that comes up around that and how do we do it in a way that feels liberatory. Yeah, that has all been really interesting and personally growthful. And I feel certain that really generative and beautiful things will come out of like our team grappling with how do we be allies to indigenous liberation and how do we like be a model for that for not only other farms, but also other Jewish communities. I love that question of broadly, what is the relationship that we as Jews, as folks who identify as Jews have to land? How, how does that impact, or how does being in diaspora impact our relationship to land? How does that impact our relationship to indigenous communities who have their relationships to all these different lands that, that we're part of? I think these are gonna be really core questions. They're, they're broadly core questions in the Jaffe field. And I think a lot of us are thinking about this ever more frequently and, and deeply and trying to really grapple with that. And it's definitely gonna be a core question at our upcoming Jaffe Network Gathering, which Rebecca, I know you're coming out to join us as a Jaffe Fellow and Tana said, I'm helping facilitate and teaching sessions. So two part question here for you, Rebecca. One is just what are some things that you are looking forward to for Network Gathering? And the other part of it is for those who are listening who are gonna join us at Network Gathering, are there questions or ideas or, or frameworks that you would suggest people start to think about as we, you know, come up to, you know, coming together at the network gathering and, you know, discussing and learning about all these things uh, mm. through that platform? Well, I think like one follow up to what I just said is that indigenous liberation and Jewish liberation are like not separate. And like, there's a lot of wisdom from Jews that also have indigenous heritage. And great segue to how the Jaffe Network Gathering is doing so much work around Jews of color, and I'm really looking forward to leading one of the affinity groups for Jews of color. I think I'm someone who's like really new to the Jaffe world. I'm not new to being Jewish and I'm not new to farming, but I am really new to this intersection. And I think that is not unrelated to being 
uh, a mixed race Jew, being a Chinese Jew. And I think like we really get to grapple together with like, how do we make these spaces feel accessible to everyone? And yeah, I'm just really looking forward to getting to ask that with everyone. And just like continuing to get to know the Jaffe world. I didn't know Jaffe, acronym Jaffe, like this time last year. There's this whole world. Like it's amazing to like, oh, Adama, what? Never heard of that. <laughs> so this is great. Yeah. So I'm just like looking forward to getting to meet more people who want to be nerds about growing food and doing it in a Jewish way. Yeah. I was thinking as you were telling your story, reflecting back on the serendipity that brought you into all of this and from the start of right of actually you know jacob you reaching out and saying is it too late for us to have a javi fellow in court four and we're like i don't know let's talk and and then sort of saying all right if we can find someone we can do it and getting that process rolling and then you know finding rebecca putting us in touch and rebecca we spoke how many days before fellowship orientation started? I think two, two days. <laughs> like working days, right? I think I think we I think we spoke on a Friday and then training started on Tuesday, right? So it was oh, uh-huh. something like that. It was a new record for <laughs> we have we have often had some, you know, last minute additions to the fellowship, but I think this was a new record for how much we could we could let in. But uh, on a personal note, as someone who is also a Chinese Jew myself. It's been such a delight to bring you into the Jaffe space and to have you in this fellowship cohort. And I've really loved the opportunities we've had to share our respective stories with each other. So thank you for that. On our final note, sort of final sign off question, for people and communities who are looking to either get started or to deepen their, their Jaffe work, their connection to Jewish environmental frameworks, to sustainability practices, to strengthening relationship to nature in a Jewish way. What's some advice that you would give for those people in those communities who are looking to do that? Two thoughts I have. One is I'm now a big fan and advocate for this kind of work in partnership with legacy institutions. So synagogues, Jewish camps, day schools, um, JCCs and so on. I think that having worked in a lot of other settings, their benefit and beauty, and we certainly owe the emergence of this movement to the, the startup organizations, there's a lot of value, a lot of, of, of benefit for deeply integrating this work into these uh, longstanding institutions. I want to plug that both to people who are running those organizations to really think about what they can do to bring in the spirit. And then for Jewish environmental entrepreneurs to think about how they might partner uh, with existing organizations. And then piggybacking on that, I I also really want to advocate for those of us who are working in the sector to really work deliberately to partner with people and organizations outside of the Jewish world. I think that in my own experience that there can be you know, continues to be kind of a, a somewhat myopic paradigm, you know, whereby there's a lot of um, insularity in it, within the Jewish environmental world. I think that that's evolving and changing and expanding in positive ways. Uh, but some of the richest dimensions of our work are by virtue of the collaborative work that we're doing in, in relationship with folks who are not working within a Jewish context. 
Yeah, any other pieces of advice you would give? Well, one thing I have loved about this job is getting to do tech study, which like, <laughs> I think as someone who just like, hasn't ever had a job where that was part of it, or like that wasn't really part of my Jewish education growing up, the ability to sit with like Jacob and Neely and study the text on Maror before giving our Maror lesson was incredibly beautiful and moving and made the lesson more dynamic and made us a better team. And so I would just say like do tech study as a staff. Yeah, absolutely. I think I'm just reflecting, yeah, on the on our <laughs> educational system and how we tend in the first 21, 22 years of everyone's lives, we sort of go so heavily into your learning, 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 and, uh, you know, and a lot of, in to generalize sort of not as much application of the work as, you know, and obviously all of us as experiential educators clearly value that component of learning. But then we just shift all the way into the other direction of like, okay, now all of it's applied and you're not just like, you're just going to learn all of the rest of it as you go. And yeah, so I love just remembering like actually <laughs> it can be yeah. blended of all of those things throughout our whole lives, creating opportunities for um, all of us as adults, as staff, as, um, yeah. as colleagues. to be And there. also to plug another secret sauce of the Abundance Farm team is we've done that also around climate change and around carbon sequestering. And I think this makes us a really strong team together, keeps what we do relevant. Mm. And I love that. Learning. Yeah, the commitment to learning is key. Amen. I love that. I mean, we do a fair bit of that at Hazon through staff meetings or other places, but it's just, it's so heartening and just warming to, to hear how organizations really embody these messages that we share with the world. So with that, I think we're, we're kind of coming to an end. So if folks want to find you or learn a little bit more, uh, where, where do they go? Abundancefarm.org. And there's the contact information for each of us there. I'm Rabbi Jacob at AbundanceFarm.org. I'm Rebecca at AbundanceFarm.org. And feel free to reach out to us directly. And if you're in the area, please stop by. We'd love to show you around. Amazing. And I believe you're also on the social medias. Most actively right now on Facebook. Our next biggest upcoming event is our annual Sukkot Harvest Festival. So I'd love to see you at that. And something we didn't mention is one of our newest projects is we launched a bakery first kosher bakery in our area. We have an outdoor wood-fired bakery out of our cob oven. So that's a really exciting initiative. I love that. Not only just the first kosher bakery, that could have just been like Dayenu, but like also a wood-fired cob oven. Like if you're going to do it, just do it's it. It's pretty awesome. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> well, what a pleasure. Watch out, Terry Gross. You guys yeah. are really <laughs> got your game. Thank you. I can say, I think for both of us, we've loved these opportunities to dive deeper into conversation with the two of you and everyone else who's been on. So thanks to both of you. Thanks to everyone who is listening. And that's all for this week. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Chavis. Chavis. Traffic programs are made possible by a growing web of staff, participants, volunteers, lay leaders, donors, organizations, institutions, and foundations. In particular, our national Jaffe work at Chazon is made possible by funding from the Jim Joseph Foundation. 
This podcast was produced by Yoshi Silverstein and Hannah Henza. It was edited by Leora Nevins and distributed by the Chazon Marketing Team. To learn more, check out the show notes. Visit our website at chazon.org slash jaffe. That's J-O-F-E-E. And be in touch.